Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. This is the podcast. Um, we delve into all the most controversial, important, memorable events, persons, ideas in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. Hello, my name is Derek Taylor. Welcome, and thank you for listening. I really appreciate all you listeners out there. Um, I'm going to take the time to let you guys know. Uh, I am on, uh, uh, you can find our podcast, which is free, pretty much on most um, platforms, Spotify, iTunes, and so on and so forth. And on YouTube, uh, please, if you would, go and subscribe if you like this, if you haven't already. Uh, if you have a friend, a friend you think would like it, go and tell them about it. Again, it's free, so it costs you nothing. Uh, so it's a good thing, but I appreciate you help uh, spread the word about this stuff. You can also find... Uh, find me on uh, Facebook at uh, Controversies in Church History. Please go and like the page. I have announcements and stuff there, as well as I, my uh, um, website, uh, churchcontroversies.com. have links to all the, the uh, episodes on there of the podcast, as well as links to my articles. I've written, I write articles for Crisis Magazine and other places. I have a blog, which I will get to every once in a while, so there's more info up there if you like it. I also want to give a... Uh, um, uh, shout out to my friend Parker. Uh, he has a has a podcast. It's called Catholicism in the Car. Uh, it's a short podcast. I think it's like fifteen minutes or the um, or the length of the episodes. Um, so please go check out his uh, his uh, his podcast. He has it's a great idea because I don't generally like listening to long podcasts, and I'm trying to keep these episodes under an hour for you guys. So it's a good idea. Go ahead and check out his uh, podcast, Catholicism in the Car. Uh, I want to thank Parker for uh, he's supporting my podcast. I want to support his. So go check that out, please, if you would. So get now to business. Um, the episode for today um, is, um, well, episode's titled Kulterkampf, the German War Against Catholicism, 1870, 1871 to 1890. So what are we talking about? What is Kulterkampf? Uh, what is that? <clears throat> this refers to... The effort of the German Empire, uh, the German national German German state, from 1871 to most about 1890, mostly in the the state of Prussia. There are states within that empire to pass laws to give the state control over and to subjugate effectively to the state, the Catholic Church, and its institutions, its schools, its religious orders, its property, uh, primarily to free what the German government saw as. In, um, its its state, its citizens from foreign control, meaning the Pope. Now, this term, I have to go into this term for a second. I won't belabor this too much, but the term Kulterkampf, and I'm using that term for a reason. Uh, the word Kulter, I won't go into this here, means something kind of different than what we think it does in English. Um, and it refers more or less, the term is something like civil, civilizational struggle, is what it sort of translates to. It was coined by a man named Rudolf Virchow, who was an atheist uh, and a materialist, but also a liberal politician, member of the German Liberal Party in Prussia, in 1873, in the midst of this culture, this culture, well, you could call it culture war. That's why I bring the term up. Um, the term culture war was kind of coined and popularized by an evangelical scholar named James Davison Hunter in the 1980s and 90s. And he was thinking of the culture comp, but not quite the same thing. Culture comp sort of means something like you have to put it in these terms. Kultur meant something very specific to Germans. Um, culture, we use the word culture in English, or in, or, yeah, English, go with English. English, it means something that's sort of common to all countries. Do you have culture or not? 
they meant something kind of specific to nationality, like to their nation, their culture. It was unique to them. And that's kind of what's at the back of this is this, well, I'm going to get into the causes of this conflict. One of them is nationalism. That's not kind of what James Davis Hunter was kind of obliquely referring to this. He meant it was an analogy. And there is an analogy to make. I'll get to it later on. But um, he was thinking of domestic disputes, like, you know, fights over school curricula, the teaching of evolution in schools, sex stuff, that sort of thing in a domestic sense. Whereas something broader is implied by Verkow, like between modernity, modern national civilization represented by Germany, and this backward uh, medieval institution of the papacy and the Catholic Church. And the causes of this are kind of deep. I'll go over them briefly, but again, the rise of modern nationalism in the 19th century, um, the idea of the modern nation-state, which has to have you know one territory, one ethnicity, one language, one government, um, that's very much a part of That's a modern notion of nationalism and what a nation is. Uh, industrialization, the turning of Germany into a great industrial power, the um, with the bring, bringing along of all the class problems that brings with it. Migration, you know, from the rural areas to the big cities because of industrialization, huge problem, a cause of this culture comp. Another cause is the growth of the press in the 19th century. And I mean not just the uh, the secular press, but the growth of a Catholic press. We'll get to that in a moment. Actually, it's it's bound up with, um, um, we'll get to the moment, the ideology of ultramontanism. And the growth of the, that press it makes, of course, you know, popular uh, opinion widespread. And so you have these warring camps of anti-clericals throughout Europe, uh, not just in Germany, but it's a European-wide phenomenon, who, again, who depict depict the church in these you know stark terms backward medieval looking the the epitome of all that is not modern and all again everything modern being good uh, opposed to what's called ultramontanism <clears throat> ultramontanism comes from the word ultramontane which means beyond the mountains and it refers to Catholics who appealed to the Pope. He's the person who lies beyond the mountains if you're in Germany, which is where more or less where that term comes from from an earlier period. But it means a sort of um, reliance on and exaltation of the Pope as as the, the spiritual leader of Catholicism in the 19th century, partly in rea mostly in reaction to the actions of liberal anti-clerical governments in the 19th century who are doing things like seizing church property, expelling religious orders. Um, that's one thing you'll get here is that this what what actually occurs in the Kulturkamp isn't really unique. Uh, lots of governments do it. We'll talk about this in a second, why it, it's, it has that resonance nevertheless. But uh, ultramontanism was... Uh, against it was a very it could be a very extreme at times it was against any sort of uh, compromise with modern governments uh it was definitely opposed to liberal catholicism in the 19th century liberal catholicism as you know um catholics who wanted to make peace with the modern state who wanted to um who saw in ideals of religious liberty the uh something they thought was the ideal for the church which again they couldn't accept that in the 19th century, and you really can't accept, you can't accept the full extent of that anyway if you're Catholic, because you can't come out and say that Catholicism is sort of, it's just one choice among many. It won't work. Um, so you have all that going on there. You also have a, a part of the reason for this cool tour comp, uh, is um, the, uh, there's a religious revival going on in much of Catholic Europe in the early and middle decades of the 19th century. 
we tend to think of um, in the popular image secularization of Europe happening, you know, starting with the French Revolution and kind of going forward in a straight line to today. It's not quite true. There was a revival starting in the, depending when you date it, 1830s or 40s in places like France and then Italy and also Germany, definitely from the 1850s. There's a revival. There's a rise in numbers of vocations to the priesthood, rise in number of vocations to religious orders, rise in number of Catholics. Um, and it basically begins to peter out in the 1870s, but it's it's not a straightforward thing. And this revival also led to greater what's called confessionalization. This is the idea that the state, like this in Germany in particular, you know, German Protestants thought this would be a, a Protestant state when uh, when Germany became a, uh, a modern nation state. And so that leads to more rivalry between Protestants and Catholics. And the thing to note about all of this is this gets into um, um, a, a sort of war of responses to all these modern um, developments, right? Again, the press, industrialization, all of those sorts of things, by uh, a couple of different camps, the liberal anti-clerical forces um, in Germany and across Europe, but also the church itself. And this is the thing, is these are both modernizing responses in the sense that even the church, the church doesn't, it doesn't modernize its beliefs, but it modernizes its its structure. I mean, it, it begins to centralize itself on the papacy in a way it has not before. This is partly brought about by these modern nation states because they are they're taking away so many of the privileges that bishops in their countries used to have. They're taking away their property. The bishops are kind of powerless now to stop the pope from basically claiming a lot of a lot of practical authority he didn't have before, and doing things that it, he, 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 he had a freer hand than he ever had before. And so a lot of the church's focus uh, becomes focused on the papacy as a result. So this is a modernizing event here, even in the church. And again, I'm not saying it obviously doesn't modernize its beliefs. Uh, it makes a point of not doing that, but it, it is a response in, in several ways, which we'll talk about here. And in terms of who, like I want to get into who's a part of this story here, <clears throat> a few names uh, to mention. First and probably most important is the, will become the Chancellor of the German Empire, Otto von Bismarck, the German statesman who's behind, he's a Prussian statesman, who's behind the creation of Germany, which I'll get to in a second, and he guides its policy from 18, the mid-1860s in Prussia and then 1871 in Germany, once it comes to the German state, to 1890. Second figure here is Pope Pius IX. Uh, he become, he's elected in 1846. Uh, in 1848, he's driven from Rome by a revolution, and he becomes an anti-modern, anti-revolutionary uh, anti crusader the rest of his life. He's hugely important. A couple other... Their players are not people, but their parties, and their parties within the Prussian and German state. And one is the German National Liberal Party. This is the secular liberal party uh, in Germany. They're the ones that will be definitely behind a lot of what's going on here. The other party is the Center Party in Germany, which is actually created as a result of the Kulturkampf, or more or less around the same time as it. And the Center Party is, they don't... I call it the center party because it's what they call themselves, but it's actually mostly made up of Catholics. It's a Catholic party. Even though they don't have a confessional identity, they definitely are there to prevent some of the stuff happening to Catholics. And so I mentioned, you know, Germany, okay, it becomes a modern nation. What do I mean by that? If you don't know, prior to 1871, there was no nation of Germany and never had been. There was a region called Germany. There were German-speaking countries 
there had been throughout the Middle Ages a, a body called the Holy Roman Empire, which was a collection of German principalities and, and princedoms and things like this. It was eventually um, done away with by Napoleon, or because of Napoleon in the early part of the 19th century, and replaced following the Napoleonic Wars by something called the German Confederation, made up of about 40 or so states, smaller states, the most important of which were Prussia and Austria. Austria was the German, uh, German-speaking Catholic country, right? Austrian Empire, Austrian monarchy, and then Prussia was the sort of Protestant power in that confederation. And what happens is that, of course, you have, in the 19th century, you have multiple revolutions. There's a big set of revolutions in 19, 18, excuse me, 1848, uh, starting in France, which spreads to the rest of Europe, and particularly to Prussia, because Prussia was behind the creation of, of the German state. And in Prussia, because of you know mob action, they have to placate them. They give them a parliament, a Landtag, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, they attempt, actually, to create a pan-German uh, parliament, a Reichstag, which they won't get around to until later. But, but they do manage, they eventually put down the revolution as the Prussian king, but they give them a constitution which remains. So you have, it's a weird, both Prussia and later on Germany, it's very weird, they're both militarized states, but they also have a constitution and a, a public assembly. And that constitution of 1850, which is given to the Prussians, gives Catholics a lot more freedom. And of course, this is occurring during this, you know, Catholic revival, and so this this ramps up Protestant um, and liberal, but definitely Protestant hostility for the first time in a long time. Uh, Protestantism is becoming more, I put this liberal in its theological leanings. There are still conservative uh, Protestants in Germany. Don't get me wrong, but it's becoming generally more liberal in that sense. But also, it's happening at the same time this Catholic revival that Protestantism in Germany is uh, formal observance is declining. So this leads to a lot of anxiety in the part of, uh, and resentment on the part of Protestants. Um, throughout the 1850s, this begins to increase for a variety of reasons, um, uh, one of which is, uh, on the papal side, is the unification of Italy. Italy had been a, a bunch of collection of states. It's unified behind the Kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia in 1859, 1861, and that, of course, leads to a lot of anxiety. They, they're, they're seizing church property and doing stuff like that, too. And then in the next year, in 1862, you have Otto von Bismarck becoming the effectively the first minister of the Prussian state. Uh, again, further, further events push this forward. 1864, the uh, Vatican issues the Syllabus of Errors. This is the condemnation of errors associated with modern thinking which is, by the way, kind of hastily written, and wasn't even, the Pope didn't even have time to look at it before they published it. And um, to say the least, it pissed off liberals across Europe. It, again, it, it cemented the popular image in a lot of their minds that the Church was just this benighted, anti-modern, um, just imbecilic institution from an earlier age that needed to be gotten rid of. A couple of years after this, this is more important, is um, the victory of Prussia uh, over Austria in the Austro-Prussian War. Uh, well, I think it took like three weeks. Uh, the Prussians defeat Austria in a war. This makes them the dominant power in the German Confederation. And in fact, they re they sort of recreate it as the so-called North German Confederation, you know, Protestant North against the Catholic South. Southern states, some of the southern states of German Confederation, Bavaria, a couple others are Catholic. At the same time, this is this is fateful here, is that within the Prussian Longtag, the Prussian parliament, Bismarck makes allies with the liberal party. So he's throwing his lot with the liberals. And I have to emphasize what liberal means in the 19th century. It means, therefore, 
things like individual property rights, individual freedoms, freedom of the press, freedom of religion. They tend to be, they are secular. That party is. They don't like religion. They want to get the church out of public life if they can. Uh, this is one thing about them, though, is that the liberals, and this is different from, from a modern liberal, a contemporary liberal, liberals in the 19th century are firmly nationalistic, the majority of them. That's why he allies with them. A lot of them dream of having a unified German state behind Russian power. Uh, in any event, um, sort of uh, resentments against Catholicism keep building in the wider German culture. And this actually comes to a head even before the beginning of the Kulturkampf. Um, historians have identified an event that happened in 1869 when mobs in Berlin, um, not just Protestants, there are other types in there, uh, attacked several times a Dominican orphanage in a place, uh, I think it's a suburb of, of Berlin called Moabit. And they besieged this, this orphanage. Then the, the monks and the nuns had to flee at one point, uh, partly because they had there was this um, image that, uh, uh, that was sort of um, promoted in the anti-Catholic press, liberal and liberal Protestant especially, that religious orders especially were the sort of epitome of everything that was backward about Catholicism. These archaic ideas of taking vows, this unnatural idea of, of celibacy, this um, you know idea of you know confessing to a priest and handing your your intellect over to them and basically becoming a robot for them. But also, of course, the sexual part of it, right? This is the idea that if you're a good Protestant patriarch, you should be out there making babies. It's an unmanly thing to give up your sexuality. Uh, and then, of course, there's all these lurid tales, right? This goes back to the to Reformation period, even before that, of monasteries being dens of iniquity, where women are forced into it. Like it's being forced into prostitution or something like that. They're forced to go into these these uh, these uh, religious orders. And so these stories get circulated in the popular press, these cheap dime store novels about you know women being abducted and taken to the taken to the uh, the convent uh, rile people up. And so they go in there and they hear actually there's a, a, a news report of someone uh, of a, a Polish nun, I guess it happens in Poland being taken to a, to a convent somewhere in Germany. and they descend the mobs descend on this religious order looking for this, trying to save women and stuff like this. Uh, which is all made up, by the way. But um, it this the the tension, the conflict, sort of centers on something like this, which is also again caused by again I mentioned industrialization and stuff like this. Uh, Berlin becomes a great industrial city in the 19th century, and you have a lot of Catholics moving in from other parts of Germany, and so their Catholic populations rising, and so there's a lot of tensions over that as well. So you have all these things in the background setting off this conflict. But what really stick hit, uh, gets the Kulturkampf as a, a legal political thing going is the victory of Prussia again in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. They defeat um, the French Empire under Louis Napoleon, Napoleon's nephew, uh, take him prisoner at the Battle of Sedan. And eventually in uh, early 1971, they proclaim the creation of the German Empire, the German Reich, uh, from the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles in France. And the thing to remember about this is an important point here to remember is that when they create this German state, it's they call it an empire. It's still really not in terms of its actual authority. It's still really a confederation of different states because they they don't just absorb every single state because there's a lot of them who have their own traditions, their own legal systems, their own you know um, representative bodies. And in fact, within this German Reich, there are four kingdoms, five duchies, seven principalities. 
three free cities and a partridge in a pear tree. Which is to say is like there's a lot of different it's a federal system with a lot of moving parts. And not all the power is with the central you know, national government. Most taxation powers are still reside with these states. And beyond this, there are, because they've conquered new territory, both in the north, they conquered what had been part of um, uh, Denmark, so they have an enclave of death, ethnic Danes in the north. In the east, they've conquered part of Poland. They have a, a Polish minority in the east. In the west, they conquered part of Ger uh, French territory in the 1871, Silesia, so they have Silesians who are French-speaking. They have a bunch of different ethnic minorities in this state. In other words, it doesn't fit the model of what your, your good chauvinistic 19th century national, nationalist wants. You know, one language, one culture, one set of laws. It has all these pockets of, if you want to put it that way, diversity, which they're, they're, they're kind of, well, you'll see, it'll become a problem in the eyes of people like Bismarck. Other thing that begins to set this off, of course, besides that, is the First Vatican Council. If you don't know, um, the Italian kingdom was bearing down on Rome. Its troops enter Rome in 1870 during the First Vatican Council, conquers it, makes it part of the capital of Rome, leaves the Vatican alone, but still the Pope hates them for this. Pius IX never forgives the Italian government for this. He actually forbids Catholics in Italy from participating in public life whatsoever um, uh, because of this. Um, uh, in any event... Um, Vatican I, of course, among other things, proclaims the infallibility and the, uh, of the Pope and the, the primacy of the Pope over the Church. And there are lots of reasons it, it, it does this, and there are reasons to do this that are essentially theological, to partly to, basically to clarify the fact that the Pope's authority does come from God. It's not dependent on his temporal power, which is now gone. But, but it's also partly a political move by the Vatican. This is a way of basically thumbing its nose at liberal governments across Europe, who, to be fair to the Vatican, they have been conquering their territories, taking their property, taking the church's property. Uh, but of course, this, this causes an almighty row across Europe. Liberals everywhere are offended by this. Again, it reconfirms for them that the church is this backward, superstitious, you know, leftover from an earlier age. And so it leads to, well, several things it leads to. What already happens even before the Vatican Council, I forgot to mention this. This is actually a result of the attack on the Dominican Orphanage, uh, is the founding of the Center Party in Prussia. It's a response to all the attacks. Uh, it's meant to sort of protect Catholics in Prussia. But other states begin using um, Vatican definition of papal infallibility as an excuse. Uh, the first of which, by the way, of all these kingdoms is actually Austria. Um, Austrian liberals had gained a, a foothold in the uh, Austrian parliament, and they used that as a pretext to abrogate the concordat that had been signed with the papacy in 1855. Excuse me. And the Austrian liberals also were the first ones to do something that uh, other countries would do, which is that they started to cultivate the so-called old Catholics. Old Catholics were Catholics who refused to accept the decrees of, of uh, Vatican I, and who formed their own schismatic church. They, they got, um, long story short, they had ordination from another schismatic church. Uh, and um, they're still around today, the old Catholics in Europe. They're very, very liberal, theologically speaking, but they're still around. And Austrian liberals begin courting them as replacements for, for Catholic priests. You'll, you'll see this, we'll go to this, it happens in several places. Uh, but also in Switzerland, which is a majority Protestant country, but it has a Catholic minority, 
uh, Protestant cantons, the sort of smaller units of the uh, Swiss state, uh, in some places are just given Catholic churches. They're taken away from them for their for Protestant use. So all this is leading up to 1871 when the Prussian government decides it's had enough uh, of what it, what it sees, Bismarck sees, especially as a fifth column in the state. And so it starts in the Prussia, in the Prussian government. The uh, government there in 1871 abolishes, there's a, they have a ministry of education and public worship, which is basically you know, to look over the, the churches. And there's a Catholic bureau within it. They abolish the Catholic bureau, bureau, and this is sort of the opening volley of hostilities. <clears throat> in that same year, they pass a law, something that comes to be called the pulpit law, which punishes criticism of the state by clerics who, and I quote here, treat state matters in a manner that threatens the public peace. So this is a direct you know, assault on, on Catholic priests who, are pre- who might be preaching against all this stuff. Um, next year, 1872, um, Bismarck makes uh, the liberal politician Aldebert Falk Minister of Education and Public Worship, and he begins to guide through a series of laws through the Prussian parliament. Uh, particularly the first passes a law that year which subjects um, which subjects um, all religious schools to state inspection. Um, that June, uh, they pass a law which excludes all members of religious orders from education and gives the Jesuits six months to lead the country. Uh, by the end of the year, 500 religious have, have left the country as a result of these laws. The center party immediately begins criticizing this, along with the Episcopate, the Prussian bishops. Um, in particular, they point out that culture comp- these laws were a breach of the Constitution. There were supposed to be guarantees of this in the Constitution, which a few years later, the government quietly gets rid of those, <laughs> those, those clauses in the Constitution. So they're actually right, but it didn't do any good at the time. Uh, at the same time, those bishops forbade Catholics to implicate themselves in any way in the enforcement of the new laws, as did Pius IX. He called on German co- uh, Catholics to resist uh, what he called, quote, the persecution of the church in, uh, in 1872. Um, he refused when uh, Bismarck nominated a cardinal for imperial ambassador to accept him. And this is the, the context of the famous remark, if you know this, Bismarck famously responded to this, that we shall not go to Canossa, unquote, quote-unquote. If you know what he's referring to, he's referring to an, uh, an earlier event, about a 900 year, 800 years earlier in the 11th century, in which the, again, the earlier Holy Roman Empire, the old medieval German Empire, the Emperor Henry IV was excommunicated by the Pope at the time, Gregory VII, and there was a sort of standoff between them, and eventually Henry IV gave in and went to Canossa and submitted to the Pope, and so he had to withdraw the excommunication. This was Bismarck basically saying, we're not backing down, and he immediately also severs diplomatic ties with the Holy See. And things just ramp up from there, um, both in Germany and elsewhere. Uh, the next year in May, they pass a series of laws that come to be called the May Laws, which, among other things, require seminarians to be German nationals. Again, there's that ethnic component going on here as well, but also to study three years in a German university and to submit to what they call the Kulturexamen, which is a series of examinations in things like literature, history, and philosophy. And again, think about the ethnic component here in this, 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 this German empire. It has all these ethnic minorities. Uh, this is all be in German, this education, I presume. Uh, but it also, these laws submit um, clerical appointments by bishops, you know, appointments of priests, to uh, government veto. As well as they can nullify a bishop's, you know, he wants to send a priest somewhere, they can't do it. 
Uh, it also tries to place restrictions on Episcopal powers of excommunication, which that's a completely, that's a totally religious thing. They, they're trying to restrict this. And it actually restricts appeals uh, made against these Episcopal decisions by priests to a newly created civil tribunal. Uh, again, the whole point of this is to try to neuter the, the religious power of the church so it can't use that power for political ends. Uh, same time, similar things are happening in Switzerland, in Basel. Um, Bishop Eugène Lachat is expelled from the country for opening ecclesiastical proceedings against priests who refuse the decrees of Vatican I. In, in uh, Jura, the place in, uh, uh, um, I think it's, yeah, in Jura, the place in, in Switzerland, uh, there's a protest against these types of expulsions. Um, priests uh, that are faithful to their bishops are forced from their parish and replaced by old Catholic priests. So you have them being replaced by this, again, they're trying to replace them with a more recalcitrant. The old, the old Catholics, by the way, were more nationalistic in their ecclesiology. So that's part of the reason they do that. Um, and then in Geneva, uh, Bishop Gaspar uh, Malmiel is deposed and expelled as well uh, for trying to establish an Episcopal see there. So lots of this going on. Again, it spreads beyond Prussia to other parts. And there are other parts, by the way, I should say, of Germany itself, other states, uh, Baden, uh, Hesse, Darmstadt, and even in Catholic Bavaria, you have Kulturkampf laws passed there. Even despite all this, um, the Center Party, the Catholic Party, increases its numbers in the next elections in 1874, both in the Landtag, in the Prussian uh, Parliament, but also the Reichstag. Nevertheless, Bismarck continues. He doubles down. That same year, uh, a Polish archbishop in the country, in Prussia, Archbishop Ledekowski, is arrested for teaching the catechism in Polish. That same year, a second set of May laws is passed, which at the same time makes recalcitrant bishops and priests liable to deposition and exile. Uh, that year, archbishops of Cologne and Trier are arrested. And part of the reason, by the way, for the passage of that law is that that same year, you also have uh, an attempt by a Catholic to assassinate Bismarck. Uh, I don't think he's associated with the bishops or anything like this, but again, this all ramps things up. You can imagine how uh, tense things are getting. Again, same year, another set of May laws is passed by the Austrian parliament, which restricts the church's legal um, um, position, the rights of religious orders, it um, places church uh, funds under state control, imposes upon bishops the obligation of notifying the state concerning um, ecclesiastical appointments. So again, all this attempt to sort of get control of the church institutionally. Uh, in Switzerland, they amend the federal constitution to prohibit the establishment of new dioceses or mon monasteries without the federal government's consent. Jesuits and other religious orders are expelled from the country. Um, the papal nuncio is basically kicked out of the country, and diplomatic relations with the Holy See are severed until 1884. At the same time, this is also a big thing I don't have time to go in here, one of the big, big points of contention between liberal governments and uh, the church in the 19th century, especially in formerly Catholic countries, would be um, civil marriage, because of course the church wanted to claim throughout the century to have you know, jurisdiction over that. Um, Switzerland makes civil marriage obligatory. It makes all makes obligatory all schools, private and public, that they be mixed interdenominational. Inter Again, this is an attack on the Catholic educational system. And things reached their peak really around 1875. Pius IX 
Um, and he, that year declares the May laws, all of them null and void, threatens any Catholic who, uh, who attempts to help enforce them, excommunication. Uh, again, things are, are, are you know, ramped up as, about as far as you can get them. Uh, civil marriage is made obligatory in Prussia in that year. Later on in other German states, they do the same thing. Later on in April, the Landtag, the Prussian parliament, passes the so-called breadbasket law, which is um, which basically suspends any sort of financial grants in dioceses where the law was not being obeyed about civil marriage. So again, they're trying to force the church's hand by taking any sort of state support away from it. In May, all religious across the entire uh, country, except those gays in hospital work, are expelled. Uh, in June, all church property, and this is all in Prussia, by the way, all church property is confiscated, and the title to it is transferred to lay trustees elected by parishioners. By 1877, there are thousands of pa parishes with no pastors, and nine of the 12 uh, bishops, Prussian bishops are in exile. As late as 1881, a quarter of all Prussian parishes we're without priests. Can you imagine if somebody tried that today in the United States? Just started, you know, let's, let's say you get, you know, I don't know, say Joe Biden decides, you know, all these bishops are against abortion. He just sort of exiles them all. That's what's going on here. It's amazing. But things begin to um, begin to shift by 1875, variety of reasons. One of which I've already hinted at is that you already see this, is that the, the center party is actually growing in strength. By 1878, the actually in the elections of 1878, the national elections in the Reichstag, the center party has achieved complete parity with the national liberals. At the same time, Pius IX dies in 1878. He's replaced by Leo XIII. Leo XIII is a great pope, but he's also a lot less combative than Pius IX. Pius IX was really pugnacious. And um, he was right to fight this, all this stuff, but it's also kind of true that his, his pugnaciousness made it hard to draw things down, which Leo XIII almost immediately did. He immediately opens up negotiations with Bismarck's, Bismarck's government, as well as the Swiss government. <clears throat> At the same time, um, things shift politically as well, not just the, the center party, which, by the way, by 1881 has become the, the, major, the largest party in the Reichstag. But also with the Socialist Party. There's a Socialist um, Party in uh, in Germany. And at this point, Bismarck breaks with the liberals and passes an anti-socialist law in 1878-1879 um, because he's becoming more and more concerned about socialism in the country. The next year, uh, he dismisses Aldebert Falk. That's the liberal secular uh, minister of education and gives his successor, uh, some discretion to ameliorate the worst effects of the May laws. In Austria, liberal parties lose uh, lose seats in parliament and therefore influence, and there, from then on, in the next few years, much of their culture comp legislation is undone. 1882, diplomatic relations are finally restored between Germany and the Holy See. 1883, Bishop Mermiel is able to return to Geneva and Switzerland. And, but it's not until 1886 and 18, 1887 that the May laws are finally modified, the worst aspects of them, by the so-called peace laws of that year. Basically, um, long story short, in order to sort of corral, try to corral socialism and other left-wing radicals are becoming more of a problem, uh, Bismarck makes his peace, essentially, with the center party is what happens. 
However, other anti-Catholic laws are only repealed in 1990 and 91, and the last, not, uh, the last uh, section of the, um, the law expelling Jesuits isn't rescinded until 1904, but it's not until 1917 that all the anti-Jesuit legislation was completely done away with. And then finally, between 1880 and 1886, um, the states of Baden and Hessen-Darmstadt in Germany repealed their laws, and then finally in 1890 which is why I choose that date for this episode, the state of Bavaria finally uh, relaxes its laws against uh, control of the church. And thus the legal struggle against the church finally comes to an end in that year. And so after a good, again, it really the intense of it lasts about half a decade, basically, 1876, 77. It begins to peter off after that. What are the, and then they finally draw back in the 1880s and 90s. What is the result? What are the results of all this? Well, one of the things that happened, and the German government and Bismarck, Bismarck just didn't understand Catholicism very well. One of the things that surprised them the most is that the Kulturkampf brought the laity and clergy together. It really strengthened the bond of German laity and uh, clergy. You have to give credit to the German bishops. They actually stood up to these people, uh, went to prison, went into exile. I hate to say this, it's hard to imagine many bishops doing that today, uh, but that was really important. It really, it really galvanized the laity who really did, they really were in lockstep. Um, there wasn't a lot of people stepping out of line and, and going over to the, to the other side because of all this. That really shocked, uh, again, uh, the German state. Um, it led, of course, to the creation of a very strong Catholic center party. Again, it's not officially Catholic, but it is a Catholic party. It will remain uh, a permanent part of, 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 German life until, well, until the Nazis take power in the 30s. Uh, it also leads to the permanent resentment uh, on the part of Catholics against Bismarck. They never really trust him ever again. They, make, they had to make you know, deals with him because of their position. They're an embattled minority. <clears throat> but they never, they never really trust the, really the government in some ways ever again. And this is the other, this is probably the biggest thing that comes out of this. Despite the fact that it strengthens the church internally in a lot of ways in Germany, it leads to the formation of a really rigid separation between the world of Catholicism, its schools, its churches, but all of its, you know, its, its, its sports leagues, everything, really set, really set almost like a sort of mutual apartheid between the church and Catholicism and the rest of the, the more secular national culture of Germany. So much so that by, that, by, that by the early 20th century, you have a lot of Catholics begin to chafe against this. They want to get out and experience the wider world. And in fact, it's there. It's it's the um, uh, German writers we call them liberal Catholics, I guess, of the or very early 20th century, who actually coined the term "Catholic ghetto" to refer to this sort of separation from the world. Which, by if you ever heard that term, it gets used by American Catholic writers before in the 1950s. I think it's uh, John Tracy Ellis wrote an article about the cat wanting Americans to come out of their ghetto because they had been separated from a, you know, a hostile Protestant culture. Uh, and so that's a, a legacy of this. So why did this fail, by the way? That's one thing we have to, I want to talk about here is why did the German state not get away with this? I mentioned it before. I'll say it again. It just simply underestimated the solidarity of German Catholics. And again, part of this was because they had this, this idea that these, these Catholics were just sort of robots that did whatever their, whatever their, Whatever their bishops told them, and once they got rid of the bishops, they would just collapse and fold. And they were totally, sh they basically succumbed to their own side's propaganda about Catholicism, the caricature, and were surprised by all this. 
Second thing is, and this I, I hinted at earlier, is that because the German state was kind of a confederation, they simply didn't have the the sufficient police power to, to enact all to really enforce all these laws fully. A lot of these laws didn't get enforced fully, partly because they had to be enforced by these states that still had a lot of autonomy within the empire. Some of whom had Catholic, you know, Catholic um, um, officials who could, you know, slow play things, you know, look the other way. Um, and so it, that, you know, it was not a totalitarian state. Some Catholic, for obvious reasons, understandable reasons, rhetoric at the time made it sound like this was a dictatorship, but it really wasn't. It didn't have that kind of power. Another reason by I should I mention this in fairness is that I mentioned I should have mentioned this I mentioned it briefly earlier. Most Protestants tended to identify their religion in Germany with with the German state and with modernity. Most of them tended to see the I can't I stress this enough. The German state was born as a modernizing project. That's definitely something there, and pretty much all Protestants share in that. However, there are still some conservative Protestants who didn't like liberal Protestants. And their anti-clericalism. That's really what happened. Is it as time went on, as the years went on, the rhetoric, the rhetoric, and even some of the legal ramifications of the Kulturkampf alienated uh, conservative Protestants because they still, yeah, they have a more higher view of the clergy than these liberals do. And then finally, the other thing I just mentioned as well throughout that little discussion is, is that socialism emerged in the eyes of Bismarck and others as a greater threat to the nation, which is why, by the way, this is an aside, but. Uh, Germany became the first country in history to enact something like Social Security in 1884. They passed law, not, not, only social, not only like a social insurance law for people, but also workers' insurance, old age pensions. All this, by the way, was a, was a, was a, a, try, a means of trying to head off the threat of, of socialism. Didn't work, by the way. Didn't totally work either. So it failed both. Bismarck actually failed to sort of corral both of those those. Uh, Perceived threats, I guess you could say, with his legislative accomplishments, which shows you how complicated this all this actually is. There's a lot of things going on here. It's not just liberal, 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 secular people versus the church. It's the church. There's liberal Protestants. They're the liberal secular party. There's the nationalists and the Bismarck. There's all these sorts of different, you know, things going on that galvanize all this. Uh, come together in this this big conflict, but there's a lot of things going on there. And and so, what's the legacy of this for us today? One of the things to note about this, again, I, I mentioned this earlier in the, the podcast. This was a national conflict, but it's also an international conflict. Uh, the Kulturkampf really, there's nothing actually all that, there's nothing unique about it that happened in Germany. Um, in terms of didn't happen elsewhere in the 19th century in Europe. France, Italy, <clears throat> um, Belgium, Switzerland, the Netherlands, virtually anywhere in Europe you had a, a sizable Catholic population, there was this kind of conflict. So it's both, and it, same, same types of beliefs at stake. So it's both, it happens at a national level, and there are things that are unique to Germany, I kind of mentioned them already throughout this podcast, but it's also, it's both, actually. The second thing is that this conflict in particularly these conflicts in the 19th century are kind of contingent. I say they're particular to their era, because this is the era of you know great national revolutions, in which n new nation states are claiming authority over their populations in a new way for the first time, which conflicts with something like the Catholic Church. We've of course since then learned to live with that. 
Um, however, there's also something larger involved, which is that sense of a persistent clash of not between modernity and the church, which is you know, anti-modern, which it kind of is in some ways, but what you're having here is a clash of differing responses to all these modern things that are going on to industrialization, later on to post-industrialization, all that stuff, to all those things by, by, yes, the Catholic Church, but also liberal, secular civilization. And, um, and of course, the Church, by the way, does its, 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 um, um, its response didn't include at the time modernizing its beliefs. There are, of course, people today that think, think, that, think the Church should. They're wrong, we can't. But, but um, it is true that you have that clash as a result of all that stuff. It doesn't mean, by the way, there has to be a Coulter comp every five minutes. But in certain situations, it can be brought to that, um, like it was in the 1870s. Uh, um, hopefully not soon. It's not a good thing, honestly, because in the long run, again, it, the church survived in Germany, but it really was, in the long run, kind of a bad thing. Kept them too cut off. Kept them too... Um, led to an overreaction uh, to all that. It was good that it brought solidarity, of course, to German Catholicism, but also led to this sort of total... You know, settling into a cocoon as if you could hide forever in there. And you can't. You're going to have to come out and face the modern world uh, at some point, which, again, the story from another time, the church tried to, of course, in the 20th century. In any event, that is our um, coverage of the Kulturkampf of the 1870s in, uh, in Germany. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, please, if you have, uh, again, if you liked it, go, please go to the Facebook page, like the page, like us on iTunes, um, like, like, you know, subscribe on, 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 uh, YouTube, wherever we're at, go, uh, go, you know, bookmark, uh, uh the website, churchcontroversies.com. Please, uh, check us out. Please tell a friend if you like it. Remember, this is Controversy in Church History is a free podcast. And as long as, uh, I can keep doing this or want to do this, it shall be free. So I'll do this as a service for you guys. Um, and uh, so, yeah, let you guys know that. And, um, yeah, um, hopefully, again, one last thing, just to, uh, just to reiterate, really uh, thank all my listeners. Really appreciate you guys. like it and find it useful. So, uh, anyway, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, God bless y'all. Have a great week, and you'll be hearing from me soon. Take care, and God bless.